Welcome to MedTech Africa, the podcast where we showcase digital health and health tech innovations from across the African continent. My name is Sam Oti, and I'm delighted to be your host. In today's episode, we will be talking about a prevalent yet overlooked health issue that affects numerous African women. The topic of discussion is urinary incontinence, a condition that is causing significant social and emotional distress among many African women. So joining me today are two public health experts, uh, Jessica McKinney and Laura Kayser, who have dedicated a significant portion of their careers to finding solutions for urinary incontinence and related pelvic floor disorders across Africa. We will explore the challenges and opportunities for tackling pelvic floor disorders in the continent, and we will also delve into their groundbreaking work on the development of a promising medical device that is designed to address urinary incontinence more effectively than other currently available treatment options. Thanks for joining us, and do enjoy the conversation. Hello, Jessica and Laura. Welcome to MedTech Africa. Such a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you both doing and where in the world are you at the moment? Thanks so much, Sam. We are delighted to be here. I am based outside of Boston, Massachusetts in the U.S. on the East Coast. Hi, Sam. It's great to be here. I'm Laura and it, I'm, I'm based in California, just north of San Francisco. Amazing, amazing. Good to have you both. It must be really early for you, Laura. What what time is it? <laughs> it's 7 a.m., so not oh, too, wow. too early. <laughs> wow, wow. Okay, not too early, but that's some commitment. Thank you so much. And then thanks to you too, Jessica. I know it's, it's 10 a.m. where you are, but still, <laughs> it's morning, it's, it's evening where I am. So my day is ending, but still have a bit of energy to, to get this going. So So let's dive right into it. You both have a very interesting story about how you ventured into women's health and rehabilitation in Africa. So tell us about your story. How did you get into this space? Sure, I'll get started. So I began working really in the global health sector early on in my career and was drawn to the field of public health, trying to figure out how that intersected with my clinical work in in physiotherapy and rehabilitation. I spent about two years living and working in the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, working to build capacity for rehabilitation services at a local facility there called Heal Africa Hospital. And in my work, I was drawn to women's health in a couple of ways. One, I was working to develop pediatric rehabilitation services and and through that listened to a lot of birth stories of the mothers who would bring in their children with different developmental or orthopedic conditions. And that really struck me. And two, the hospital began seeing a high volume of patients with obstetric fistula, as well as women who had experienced sexual violence in the context of the ongoing conflict in that region. And I was asked to develop rehabilitation programming to go alongside the medical and surgical care that these women were receiving. So seeing such a huge need for health and rehabilitation services among all of these women really drew me in and and piqued my interest in developing expertise in this field. Yeah, so I'll jump in. I think that there are a lot of similarities, just maybe the kind of in a reverse order. So as I was finishing physical therapy school in the U.S., I was exposed in a clinical setting to women's health in practice. Like I kind of learned about it in class, but seeing it happen in practice with the physical therapist I was training under 
similarly made a huge impression on me as I heard the stories of the women who were coming in with complications related to their pregnancy or pelvic floor issues. And while I realized I had quite a lot to learn, um, that was just a turning point for me and realized I would dedicate my career to figuring out how to build capacity in this space. Um, I didn't know that term at the time, for sure. But when I look back, it truly is what I set about to do. A few years into my career, I opened a practice in the Boston area in 2004 and and was really focused at that point on building community-based capacity for women's health and public health rehabilitative care. Um, And about five years after starting that, I was aware of always having had an interest in global health and was really waiting for the, the right opportunity. And it showed up at that time when I was on an international listserv for physical therapists who were interested in practicing in women's health, asking for a PT with that experience to travel to Heal Africa Hospital. And that was sent out really on behalf of Laura and the program that she was building. So that really marked the beginning of our working relationship together some 13, 14 years ago. Wow, sounds like a match made in heaven. And for the audience, you need to check out the cover art of this episode. You'll see Jessica and Laura laughing (laughs) together. (laughs) I guess that sort of signifies this amazing professional relationship that 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 you have. So so let's get into into the details. You know, you you mentioned a few times about obstetric fistulas. And in in my brief clinical practice, I encountered a number of patients, women mostly from low income, very poor communities that were living with various pelvic floor disorders, urinary incontinence, etc. And I know just how stigmatizing they can be. But perhaps our audience is not super familiar with this particular problem. So maybe I'll turn to you, Laura, if you can tell us more about this broader area of pelvic floor disorders, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Why do they affect mostly women and how bad is this problem across Africa? So thanks, Sam, for that question. Pelvic floor disorders are conditions that affect the pelvic organs and the pelvic floor, which includes the muscles, nerves, connective tissues, et cetera, that provide support to the pelvic organs. So in women, the pelvic organs would include the bladder, the uterus, and the rectum. And the most common pelvic floor disorders are urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence, and pelvic organ prolapse. So briefly, urinary incontinence is the involuntary loss of urine. Fecal incontinence is the involuntary loss of solid or liquid stool. And pelvic organ prolapse refers to the descent or drop of one or more of those pelvic organs from their normal position. So this drop in position can contribute to problems with bowel or bladder function, as well as a number of impairments in a woman's ability to carry out her normal activities of daily living. Pregnancy and childbirth are the major risk factors for developing a pelvic floor disorder. And so we see these conditions disproportionately affect women. Given the high fertility rates across Africa and often the limited access to obstetric and gynecologic care, we believe that this contributes to the high prevalence of pelvic floor disorders in this region. One important thing or distinction to to note is that when we talk about pelvic floor disorders in the African continent, we want to mention the problem of obstetric or gynecologic 
hemiplegic fistula, which I talked about early in the introduction. In some ways, this overlaps with pelvic floor disorders because women with this condition do experience urinary and or fecal incontinence. But there are some important differences here. A fistula is an abnormal communication or an abnormal hole that develops typically between the vaginal wall and the bladder or urinary tract. It can also develop between the vaginal wall and the rectum. And sometimes it can include both. It most commonly develops as a complication of labor and childbirth and is really a devastating injury for women who experience this. It's almost exclusively seen in low-resource settings where access to antenatal or emergency obstetric care is very limited. There's been a number of global campaigns to, to treat and prevent fistula for a number of years now, and these are typically focused on delivering surgical care as the primary intervention because most women with fistula would require surgery to fix that, that hole or that communication that's formed. Jessica and I have worked in this space for a number of years, and we continue to do so, really developing rehabilitation programs to go alongside surgical care. But I just want to be clear for your listeners that pelvic floor disorders that we're mostly speaking about today are not fistula. So most of the incontinence that we see is episodic, not a constant leakage that women with fistula would experience. And these pelvic floor disorders are much more prevalent. So for example, it's estimated that about 2 million women in the world are living with fistula, whereas in sub-Saharan Africa alone, there are over 120 million who have urinary incontinence. Got it. I think I saw a paper, and I know data is quite difficult to come by across Africa on this particular issue, but I saw a paper that estimates that is around one in five women have some kind of urinary incontinence. So maybe I'll turn to you, Jessica. What are the common options that people have, especially people in low-income communities and populations and rural areas, for example, across Africa, what options do they have when it comes to, to treating pelvic floor disorders? And where are the gaps in treatment and care? Great question. So, Sam, I think I'll probably start with framing up the common options for treatments kind of when we look through a, a global context, like when we expand and look at all of the literature and professional guidelines we have available to us from around the world. And in that case, for all pelvic floor disorders we're talking about, the treatment ideally will progress from the most conservative and low-risk options to those that may be more costly and or involve more risk to the patient. So urinary incontinence is the most common of the pelvic floor disorders, as Laura mentioned. And I think kind of walking through that care pathway would provide a good illustration of the common options for care. So there are three types of urinary incontinence that comprise the majority of incontinence experienced by women. These are stress urinary incontinence, which is a kind of leakage associated with like a physical stress, cough, some type of physical exertion, a jump, et cetera. Urgency urinary incontinence, which is leaking of urine that is associated with a strong and sudden urge to go to the bathroom that someone can't defer or control. And then mixed incontinence, which is simply when an individual has both of those symptoms combined. So for all three of these types, the first step in care, first-line care, consists of exercise and health education, mainly exercises for the pelvic floor muscles, which we refer to as pelvic floor muscle training. And pelvic floor muscle training is maybe commonly referred to as Kegels. You may have heard that term, but has been defined in the literature as pelvic floor muscle training, and that's how we'll refer to it. And so that indicates that with the right dosing of exercise, 
which means the right amount of time doing the exercise, the right intensity, the right duration, nearly 70% of women can see improvement or cure in their urinary incontinence symptoms. And the best way that's been described to implement PFMT, as we abbreviate it, is under the direction and supervision of a qualified healthcare provider for a period of about three months. So then beyond first-line care, additional interventions can include the use of vaginal estrogen and continence pessaries, which are like a splinting device worn inside the vagina that provides support to the bladder and surrounding tissues, as well as medications for urgency incontinence and overactive bladder symptoms. And then finally, there are procedural interventions like injections to support the tissues around the urethra or surgery that might be indicated for the treatment of stress incontinence. And similarly, various types of nerve stimulation, peripheral nerve stimulation, or an implantable sacral neuromodulation that are used kind of at the the later stages to treat urgency incontinence. So that is kind of the recognized global pathway for urinary incontinence care and really everywhere we turn. So all high, low, middle resource settings, um, major gaps exist at the beginning of this care pathway such that care-seeking is often delayed for a few years from the onset of bothersome symptoms or even for one's lifetime, such that many women never participate in any type of evaluation or treatment for their incontinence. Stigma and shame and a real lack of health awareness are all drivers of these low rates, but there are definitely barriers such as the time and cost to seek care and lack of capacity in the healthcare workforce that are significant. Another major gap to mention is the lack of capacity to implement care at every level in ways that are accessible and scalable. So we have the woman who kind of starts on this care journey and has made it through that initial gap. There are a lot of other gaps that exist in being able to provide the right care for her at the right time and to be able to progress that care if she needs to. And so none of these can really be understated, and they contribute to what we see as a global undertreatment of women with pelvic floor disorders. And this is a disparity really between the need for care and the actual engagement and treatment in high resource settings. We see this. So as one example, a study looked at medical claims over a two-year period for over 100,000 women who had urinary incontinence. And in that two years, there were fewer than 3% of women who had any physiotherapy services associated with their diagnosis, which is what would have been consistent with first-line care. So the disparities between the need for care and actual engagement and treatment are even more pronounced in settings where there are fewer resources for healthcare, such as robust limitations in the healthcare workforce, uh, limitations in transportation to get to and from clinic settings or appointments, and limitations in healthcare infrastructure including the lack of resources to pay to develop a service line around incontinence care, public floor disorders, and the lack of resources to pay even for an individual's care. Um, what we've seen in the limited research that, you know, that we have to turn to from Sub-Saharan Africa around this, we see documentation of a real willingness to participate in treatment and a desire for treatment really at all stages of the care pathway. However, there's, there's just a real lack of ability to engage because the capacity has not been constructed and, and made available. Got it. Got it. You've said a lot. And if I'm hearing you correctly, so there is quite an effective 
way of managing and treating pelvic floor disorders through pelvic floor muscle training, supervised pelvic floor muscle training. But for a variety of issues, whether it's supply side issues in terms of capacity to provide that supervised rehabilitative care, or whether it's demand side in terms of low health awareness, stigma, and, and other issues, not women are generally not seeking care or receiving care for 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 this these conditions but but i know that you have done something or you're trying to do several things actually <laughs> and and maybe i'll turn to to laura now because one of the things jessica mentioned is that you need capacity for supervised care and this capacity is is lacking and i know that you have developed a training guide for health workers to be able to provide rehabilitative care for pelvic floor disorders. So tell us more about this training guide. What does the guide include? Who is it for? And what are your plans for making it more widely accessible, particularly in the African context? Sure. So as Jessica mentioned, rehabilitative care, which includes health education, behavioral and lifestyle modifications, and exercise, such as pelvic floor muscle exercise, is typically recommended as first-line treatment or even as an adjunct to medical or surgical interventions for urinary incontinence and other pelvic floor disorders. But as she, she outlined, a lack of providers who are skilled in delivering rehabilitative care for women is, is a major problem worldwide, and particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and other low- and middle-income regions. So Jessica and I have been working to build capacity for women's health rehabilitation services for over 13 years now. After working with a number of institutions across Africa, including our formative work at Pansy Hospital in Bukavu in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, we should develop a comprehensive training guide for health workers with interest in this space. This work was supported by USAID, Fistula Care Plus, Engender Health, and Mama LLC. And the training guide really focused on rehabilitative care for women with maternal morbidities. We did include obstetric fistula, as well as urinary and fecal incontinence and pelvic organ prolapse. The guide is divided into sections, each really with a specific target audience. So for example, the first section provides accessible health education about pelvic anatomy and function, bladder and bowel function, and sexual function. And our goal here was for this to be used by various cadres of providers, including community health workers, and even to be used directly with patients to help them understand their own anatomy and begin to, to understand kind of what is normal and what is not normal. There are other sections in the training guide that are geared more towards um, you know, a more skilled healthcare provider who may be evaluating a woman with a pelvic floor disorder or who may be in need of a treatment protocol for a specific condition. The guide was published open access in 2019, and since then, it's been translated into French, Portuguese, and Swahili, in addition to the English. And we are continue to use this in our ongoing outreach and education initiatives. But our goal was really to see it used also as a standalone resource. And we have actually seen this start to be successful, where healthcare workers around the globe and, and across Africa have accessed it and applied the relevant concepts to their work in women's health. Um, so this has really helped us to scale up rehabilitative care um, and to empower local healthcare providers to treat some of these conditions. Our next goal would be to, to do some updates, and we would love to be able to digitize the training guide at some point, perhaps making some components interactive and just improve, improving the user experience overall. But for now, it's available for free download online. I'd be happy to provide the link to including your show notes if any listeners are interested in accessing it. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be sure to include it in, in the show, the link in the show notes. But my audience might be wondering, but wait a minute, this is a digital health and health tech podcast. So where is the digital health and where is the, <laughs> is the health tech? Well, hang on, hold on to your seats. You know, I personally have been particularly keen on featuring femtech innovations on the show because even though they have so much potential to transform women's health, they, they tend to be neglected and, and underfunded. And, and I know in your current role at Axina Health, you're working on an amazing femtech device that will help women that have pelvic floor uh, disorders. I believe it's called, is it Leva or Leva? I think you, you call oh, it Leva. Leva, <laughs> yes. Amazing device. I've seen videos of how it works. So maybe I'll turn to you, Jessica. I know it's still early days in terms of your thinking about how you're going to introduce uh, this device beyond the United States. But tell us everything you can about the device. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it might be helpful to go back to a comment that you made earlier in response to what I was talking about, about interventions for pelvic muscle training. But if we really oversimplify, we, we have this intervention of you know, first-line health education and pelvic floor muscle training that we know works. So we know what works and we know for whom it works, but we, the collective, we have not figured out how to implement that effectively to scale, right? So that's kind of fundamentally the, the problem that has been existing for a while. And, and truly it was, you know, that that drew us to working on Leva, a shared commitment Laura and I have to population health and capacity building in women's health that got us so excited about working on this device for Leva Public Health System several years ago. So Laura and I were introduced to an earlier version of the product back in 2017, and we saw the potential in this immediately. There was a novel mechanism in the device that really spoke to us as physios, and we saw the enabling opportunities of digital health to deliver and scale evidence-based care. So since that time, we've been involved in product development, foundational and clinical research, and education of women in the community and of clinicians. So Leva was developed in the U.S. and has proceeded through the appropriate regulatory channels to be cleared by the U.S. FDA for the treatment of stress, mixed and mild to moderate urgency incontinence including overactive bladder, as well as chronic fecal incontinence, which is defined as leakage over three months or more, and pelvic floor muscle strengthening in women. So this device is a combination of hardware and software in which the, the software component is a smartphone app directing pelvic floor muscle training program. And the hardware components include a small intravaginal wand that houses motion sensors that interpret and provide feedback on what's happening when a woman is using her pelvic floor to do exercises. So if pelvic floor muscle training is the right intervention for a woman, it only works if she does the exercises correctly, consistently, and with enough intensity to lead to improvement in her symptoms. And so Leva has been designed to address all of these components. And the app is really rich with features to encourage participation in the program, to monitor adherence, and track symptom change over time. So a few other points on Leva is that this current product is a single user product designed for at-home use and is commercially available only in the United States. Our team, broadly speaking, is focused on increasing access in the U.S. market, primarily by working with insurers to achieve widespread reimbursement for Leva. Uh, a key component of this work has really been the clinical data generated demonstrating 
Leva's efficacy and effectiveness in treating incontinence. We've conducted and published several studies. Among these are a large uh, randomized controlled trial of nearly 300 women in which use of Leva led to statistically and clinically significant improvement over an active control group that performed pelvic floor muscle training at home. This was demonstrated at an eight-week primary endpoint, and the results are durable out to a year. One other note on our data is we have published results of eight weeks of Leva use amongst a cohort of real-world users. So 265 real-world users of Leva who also demonstrated improvement in their urinary incontinence symptoms. That's kind of a summary of, of where that product is right now, um, kind of as it stands. And you know, that's been several years um, in development. Amazing stuff. And I think you're sort of being modest because I've read some of those papers <laughs> and, and mm-hmm. the results are quite out, out, outstanding. I, I think I saw somewhere that said, so it reduced the number of leaks that users had from twice per day to twice, is it twice per week or twice every yes, two weeks? That's correct. Yes, yeah. yes uh, <laughs> quite phenomenal. And, and I see it solves for two problems, if I'm hearing you correctly. One is solving for the issue of people not doing this pelvic floor muscle training exercises properly by giving them guidance mm-hmm. and feedback through the app. But also because you can use it at home, it also solves for the problem of, of needing super, supervision, right? Because the, everything is built into the device and into the app to ensure that you, you, you do it correctly. So that sounds pretty amazing. But let me ambush you, Jessica, before I turn to, to Laura, because we are in Africa and I'm sure it ha- everywhere cost is, is a factor. So how much does Lever cost? Right, Sam, that is absolutely a question that is on everyone's mind when they get interested. And what I'll say is that right now, our team is really focused on navigating the cost that patients pay through the health insurance system in the United States. It is a very unique market. And and so we are actively in discussions with many U.S. payers, so many U.S. insurers, to get them to kind of consider a lot of the gaps that we've talked about in in care and in access to care for incontinence, maybe the the costs that they're paying to manage that and the evidence behind LEVA. So the cost that individuals will have to to pay is still a little bit to be determined by some of the decisions that get rendered by these plans. What I will say is that the company has a really firm and enduring commitment to making LEVA as accessible as possible to, to advocate with, with insurers and you know, eventually want to see as widespread coverage for, for women for LEVA as we possibly can achieve. Totally, totally understood. So let me let me turn to to Laura. You you have plans to bring this device to Africa, but but I, I know it's still too early to to talk about those plans. Nevertheless, why do you think this device will be relevant in Africa? Great question, Sam. So we know that we will need to make some significant modifications to the current product and and the use model. So kind of how Leva is used in the U.S. We we don't believe will work exactly the same in in terms of or in the context of Africa. So we are working to to update the design features to make it more acceptable and feasible for use in that context. But that said, we are certain of the need for treatment options for women with incontinence and other pelvic floor disorders in, in Africa and, and in low and middle income 
settings. The capacity to care for the large number of women with these conditions is incredibly limited, you know, worldwide and and certainly even more pronounced in in this context. There was a research study a number of years ago of women with pelvic floor disorders in low and middle income countries that indicated that the majority of women will not receive any treatment at all in their lifetime. We've also had the opportunity to speak with a number of healthcare providers across Africa who have expressed interest in expanding treatment options broadly for women with incontinence and pelvic floor disorders, and who are very eager to learn more about our plans for expanding to Africa with a kind of LEVA-informed solution. Currently, we are working with a Kenya-based research and user-centered design team called ThinkPlace to conduct qualitative research in Kenya and Nigeria to learn more about women's experiences with incontinence, their current management strategies, and their willingness to engage in treatment, um, including digital health solutions and products. As part of that research, we will also be interviewing key stakeholders such as family members, community leaders, and healthcare providers that will inform our work. And this will really be foundational to our product development efforts in the context of Africa. Got it. Got it. Very important to have the end users, you know, front and center as as you take this forward. But I'm sure maybe let me turn to you, Jessica. I'm sure that given your experience with working in the continent, what challenges do you anticipate in your journey to bring Leva to, to Africa? Thanks. That's a great question, Sam. As Laura indicated, our work is really to develop a new leave it informed solution. So one of our early challenges is getting the right prototype, um, getting something that is truly developed for the African context and also generalizable to other lower resource settings. We're very focused on this challenge and focused on keeping a very open mind to what this initial solution may be, as there are, as you can appreciate, certainly many considerations. Additionally, it is so important for us to decide where to start. Uh, incontinence does not discriminate. It affects women across every aspect of education, socioeconomic status, geography, et cetera. So we need to have some focus in the early steps and build from there. Um, challenges also include the need to build both the solution and you know, this product that we're thinking about, but also the market, you know, building a, a market for treatment and desire for treatment. And of course, finding the right fit, economically speaking, is critical. As you mentioned, we're very aware of that. The solution must be culturally accessible, economically viable, a match for the healthcare environment, and effective. (laughs) You have your your work cut out for you. (laughs) And obviously, I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm very (laughs) sure you are both up to the task. pretty well grounded in the region. You understand what a lot of the constraints are. And I like the approach that you're taking, being very consultative, very inclusive, very participatory as you as you think about the next steps, because challenges aside, all right, this, this can really be a very trans- transformational de- device. So as we close, let me turn to, to Jessica first. And again, what are your hopes and aspirations for, for tackling the burden of pelvic, pelvic floor disorders in, in, in Africa? I know, you know, this is an area of, that, that you're both passionate about. So, so what are your hopes and aspirations? And, and maybe you, Laura, you can close by telling us what message might you have for policymakers and other stakeholders? Because I, I think this is an under-researched 
underinvested area, right? So, so what would your message be for policymakers and other key st- stakeholders? So let's start with you, Jessica. Yes, thanks. So I think we try to keep a balance of both, you know, pragmatism and idealism, I suppose, in our hopes and aspirations for, for tackling this burden of public board disorders. In a nutshell, what do we want to see? We are focused on scalable, accessible, and effective first-line care for public board disorders in women. So, you know, our, our hopes and aspirations really are to to achieve that. And that is done through a variety of mechanisms. You know, part of it is in product development. It's going to be in the clinical research that undergirds those efforts, public awareness that is a driver of those efforts. And so it's a a long game, I suppose, because the need is so great and there's just so much that needs to be done. But we believe that we can stack up a lot of you know, short-term wins and mid-term wins and, and stay on this, this path. Well said. Laura? So pelvic floor disorders are burdensome health conditions that warrant treatment. And when left untreated, can really have a significant negative effect on women's health, their livelihoods, and their ability to participate in society. We believe there is an economic imperative as much as there is a health and human rights imperative to escalate and amplify women's desires for treatment for incontinence and other pelvic floor disorders. We would encourage policymakers and stakeholders to think about opportunities to expand women's health services to include evaluation and treatment of pelvic floor disorders alongside other important sexual and reproductive health initiatives, as well as maternal health initiatives. Well, there you have it, folks. There you have it, policymakers. <laughs> wow, it's it's been really amazing talking to both of you. Thank you so much for, for being on the show. And look, I, I know you have some, some local partners in, in Kenya. And whenever you're in the country, please look me up. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. MedTech Africa is produced and hosted by Sam Oti and co-edited by yours truly, Veronica Sander Ochambo. The goal of MedTech Africa is to provide a platform for showcasing digital health and health tech innovations across the African continent. Please reach out to us if you have any thoughts on this episode or recommendations of African health innovators that you'd like us to host on the show. You can find our contact details in the episode show notes. Finally, be sure to subscribe to MedTech Africa on your preferred podcast platform. And if you have a moment, please leave us a great review because it really helps other people to find the show. Thanks again for listening and we hope you join us in our next episode.